Hello and thank you for choosing to listen to this week's message from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently walking through our Redeemer series in the book of Ruth. Our prayer is that this time in God's word would challenge and encourage your heart by seeing Christ the Redeemer as our restorer and provider. God bless. Today, as I've already said, we're beginning our series in the book of Ruth. Uh, I'm excited about today. I've been looking forward to this, and I hope that, uh, it's all, I always say this, like the word is always good. Like this, this passage, every passage we ever look at will be wonderful. I can't say the same about every sermon, all right? But I'm hoping that this series that we're uh, walking through Ruth will do justice to just how good the book itself is. That's our aim, at least. You know, growing up, uh, if I was, maybe you were like me, maybe I was like you, that the story of Ruth fell into a period of my, um, for lack of a better term, Old Testament biblical ignorance. I'm not saying I was stupid, I'm just saying this was a part of the Bible that maybe uh, you and I definitely didn't know uh, well at all. You know, I maybe like you grew up in church, and so, you know, I was do I did the vacation Bible school thing, and I listened during Sunday school lessons, and so in my Old Testament, I knew the stories. I knew creation. I obviously knew the Exodus. I mean, I saw the movie Prince of Egypt, so that's a joke. That's not good enough. Okay, you need to know the story of the Exodus, but I also knew assorted Bible stories in the Old Testament, things like Joseph in the coat of uh, many colors, or Samson and Delilah, or David and Goliath, or David and Bathsheba, or Daniel and the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And unfortunately, not that those things aren't important, but unfortunately, we have culturally come into a place where as a church, we teach the Old Testament as individual stories, but that's not the way that the Old Testament is supposed to be understood. The Old Testament, just like the New Testament, tells one story. Now, it's told in a lot of different ways and a lot of different phases, but understanding that the Bible isn't supposed to be seen as just isolating characters like a storybook, that really shortchanges the beauty of what God is, as has been doing for all of human history. And so in light of understanding that, Ruth fell into my biblical ignorance. Even if seeing it as an individual story, it's not good enough. And maybe that's you as well. Or maybe you know that it has something to do with love and a guy named Boaz, but you lack a fuller picture. Well, here's going to be our goal is to understand the book of Ruth. Yes, absolutely. But more importantly, to understand the hand of God in this story. All right? We need to know the details. But more important than that is understanding the hand of God in this story. We're going to look at the introduction today, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1 of Ruth. And so hopefully you've already found it. But the introduction, these first five verses of Ruth, are like the introduction to the Bible. What I mean by that is that they are a story of great hurt, but of great healing by a great God. Isn't that the story of the Bible, at least the introduction? Great hurt, a great fall, but a promise of great healing by a greater God. Ruth's story, and really we won't even get to Ruth, the person today. We're going to start with a woman named Naomi, but their stories, simplified, are the same as our stories. And that is, our hurt is not beyond God's reach. Isn't that good news? That our hurt is not beyond God's reach. And even more, God's so- God sovereignly uses our hurt 
to help us to see Him and savor Him. And so the next few weeks, that's going to be our goal, is to see and savor God as our Redeemer. So let's do it. All right, let's look at Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well. Ruth 1, 1 through 5 says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the, name, the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now we're going to stop there, and you may be thinking, what I was thinking when I first read this is, what in the world are we going to say about those five verses? It doesn't really get us going very far, but I promise you there's a whole lot that's, not, that's being said that's not necessarily being said in this passage. You know, we're not sure who wrote the book of Ruth, or even the main reason that this book was written, but we do have an idea of when it was written. Just by looking at the very last part of this book, we probably know that it was written sometime after the kingship of David, or maybe during the kingship of David. And so, just to give you a frame of reference, that's a couple of three or four generations down the line. And so, all of these things are taking place sort of in retrospect. The author is writing these things down for our good, for some reason. We're going to see that, but it's in retrospect, four generations prior. The theme of this book is, though so often unseen in the fog, of difficult circumstances. God is sovereign, He is wise, and He is covenantly kind to His people. It takes place well before David, as I said, in the period of the Judges, which we see at the beginning of verse 1 there. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Judges, but uh, again, that was another part that fell into my biblical ignorance growing up, and so I'm going to assume that you don't know a lot even if you do. The book of Judges is a little bit strange. You know, we read it in English and we say judges, okay? So these guys were like like mediators, like a courtroom. But that's not what the judges were. They weren't like courtroom mediators, but they were God-given human military deliverers. This is very, very important. And whenever we begin a new book, this first part, we can't even really get into it without really understanding the background first. And so I'm going to explain to you why it's important that you understand the time period and the location that these events fall into place. The era of the judges was riddled by a five-stage pattern. And you don't have to write this down, but just listen closely, okay? A five-stage pattern. Number one, unfaithfulness, okay? They had mixed with the Canaanite people group, okay? And they, so they, they were getting into the promised land, but the period of the judges was a time when they were mixing with the Canaanites that occupied the land before they were there. Well, that wouldn't be a big deal, but mixing with this people group was outlawed because... They were also taking up their culture, mainly their gods, their idols. And so when they did this, mixing with these Canaanite cultures, they had become unfaithful to God. And so the first stage was unfaithfulness. And so the narrator's prologue of the book of Judges goes something like this. This is a story about Israel's utter moral failure and the catastrophic results. It's not a happy book. Judges is not. It's a very sad book. A lot of moral failure, a lot of catastrophe. 
for God's people. So the first stage was unfaithfulness. The stage of unfaithfulness is followed by the second stage of judgment, that God pours out punishment, judgment in several different ways, mainly by enemy oppression, military conflict, but also by famine. After judgment, that second phase comes a third phase where Israel cries out for help. God, give us a judge. This judge wasn't someone, like I said, a courtroom mediator. The judge was a, a military deliverer. Samson was one of those, right? So you know Samson. He's a tough guy, right? He's a military deliverer. He was one of the judges, and there are several others. They would cry out, God, give us a judge. Give us a savior. And so he would do so, and he would deliver them. And then the fourth phase is that Israel would then find favor after they're being repentant. But then the phase five is the saddest phase, and that is that they would repeat, right? They would repeat. They would go back to unfaithfulness and then into judgment, then crying for help, finding favor, and then again falling into unfaithfulness and so forth and so on. It was a very sad period. And if you read the book of Judges, it just gets worse as it goes on. The big cause of that is, like I said, culture mixing with Canaanites, taking up their gods and their goddesses. Now, why do I say that? And what does that have to do with Ruth? Well, one of the groups within those Canaanite people were in a region called Moab. They were the Moabites. It's in a season of disarray that an Israelite man named Elimelech steps into this godless culture of Moab, seeking physical refuge and provision. So, so in, in light of that, and really the setup of the book of Ruth is going to be our structure today. So if you're taking notes, this is going to be what our structure is going to be, is the pursuit of happiness. It's the pursuit of happiness. This is what we see in the man Elimelech, and we're going to see this also later on in Naomi's life, and we're going to see this in a lot of different ways, but the pursuit of happiness is something that it tickles our ears in a certain way as American people, right? Uh, but the pursuit of happiness is dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. And so the first question that we're going to answer within this is, what motivates my decisions? What motivates my decisions? The pursuit of happiness. What motivates my decisions? You're ingrained into the identity of you as an American citizen is an inalienable right, as we call it, known as the pursuit of happiness. Naturally, we make decisions to fit into this pursuit. And it's not a bad pursuit so long as happiness is defined by something purer than your heart. That's the bad news, right? Happiness is not a bad pursuit so long as it's pursued by something more pure than your heart given to itself. Well, that's a tricky one. That's a tough case for us because our hearts left to ourselves are not pure. But happiness is not bad. Happiness is a godly pursuit. In Psalm 1611, David tells us that in the presence of God, there is, quote, pleasure and fullness of joy. That sounds good, right? Being with God is the epitome of happiness. And so happiness is not a vain pursuit. It's not even bad. But when happiness is not defined by God, it can be lethal. We know this in a lot of ways, biblical ways. Adam and Eve pursued happiness as they defined it. It led to the failure of all of mankind. David pursued happiness as he defined it. It led to adultery, murder, deception. Judas even pursued happiness when he betrayed our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And so you see, happiness can be a good thing. Happiness and the pleasure and the presence of God forever, that's a great thing. But if it's defined by the, pure, the impurity of our hearts, it is lethal. I say that because in Judges 17, verse 6, this period of the Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Translation, everyone was pursuing happiness as they defined it. The period of the judges was a time that everyone pursued happiness according to their own hearts. And so we think about a song like Roxette's 1988 hit, Listen to Your Heart. Guys, that's a bad mantra. That's a bad mantra for us. The man we begin reading about in verse 1 was on a pursuit of happiness, or we can also use the word provision. God's promise of having my needs met, but he did not seek it in the presence of the Lord. So let's look at it in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, okay, there you have it again, there was a famine, all right? So there's the punishment already. We talked about it earlier. There's one of them. There was a famine in the land of Israel. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah, you know about Bethlehem, right? He went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, so famine was not always a manifestation of God's judgment, but in the period of the judges, it was. And so just like that that five-stage plan that I told you about, we know that Israel has been unfaithful, and so God has punished this people group. The book of Ruth begins with a problem and with man's sin. This word sojourn, you may have a different word there, but it's something about traveling or seeking uh, a settlement, all right? So this word sojourn, the man from Bethlehem and Judah, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. What that word means is that he is going on an extended travel to stay for a short period of time. It's temporary, the plan of which is to get food, to either get food to bring it back or at least to be fed for a short time. And so that's the plan of a sojourner. Maybe your translation says a resident alien. It's someone that's just going to stay for a time and be fed and then go back. Well, it wasn't sin for Elimelech to go looking for food. Anyone would do the same thing. In fact, all of Israel probably did the same thing. They're famine. They they have to eat. You have to feed your family. And so sojourning wasn't a bad thing, but it was where he went looking for food that was the issue. For him, More important than honoring God was feeding his family, no matter where that led him. And so Moab was clearly a land of plenty, but they were spiritually barren. And as an Israelite man, Elimelech knew the error of going to this people group. Now, I want to explain why it's such a big deal that he went, that that it's such an error that he would go to this place. This nation, this people group, Moab, it began, its origin was an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. So its very beginning was bad news in Genesis chapter 19. We also know that their king Balak hired a man named Balaam to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And so while they're passing by, this guy is hired to pronounce curses on God's people. They're not exactly friends of God. Their women had been a stumbling block to Israel in the wilderness. They had seduced them, Israel's men, to worshiping false gods. And most recently in Judges chapter 3, they had militaristically oppressed Israel. I say all that to say that mixing with the Moabite culture wasn't problematic because of the food. History tells us that it was problematic because when Israel crosses the culture gap, it's not just that they're just resident aliens. They take up their foreign sins, their idols, and certainly this was the case. Look at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. I want you to read that last part again. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, so 
I'm going to hit this in a couple of different layers. All right. First of all, I want you to understand the irony of a name. Now, we've talked about this in some sense. Like when you hear a name in the Bible, you need to know sometimes what that name means. And Elimelech's name is a very ironic name. Now, in our culture, when someone tells me their name, okay, I would say, hey, my name is, is Caleb, or I have a brother named Luke. You don't necessarily, maybe you do know what the name Luke means. Does anybody know? Just raise your hand if you know what, the, I'm not going to call on you. Do you know what the name Luke means? Probably not. It means light, which is a pretty cool name, by the way. It's a pretty cool meaning. My name means dog. It really does. I promise. It actually has an adjective in front of it. It means a loyal dog. I guess that's better. It just means faithful. And so the man, by the way, Caleb in the Bible, he is faithful and he's loyal. My name's not that cool. All right. I guess it is because he's cool. But anyway, I say all that to say you would have to Google my name to learn the, the meaning. In fact, I had to Google my name to know the meaning of my name. But there are names in our language where you don't have to Google the name to know the meaning. For example, I have a niece named Joy. What do you think that means? It means joy. It means happiness, right? Or you may have uh, someone in your name or in your family named Brooke. My wife's name is Brooke. What do you think that means? It's a babbling Brooke. Her name's not very cool either, right? So I'm just saying, you know the names and their meanings because they're intricate. They're they're basically our language. Well, in this language, in Hebrew, when they would read a name, they knew a lot of times the meaning of that name because it was a, a common term. And Limelech's name was two words put together. They would read it, and it would be like reading the word joy. They would know what that name meant. His name is El Melech. El is short for Elohim, which means God. Melech is the term for king. His name means God is king. There's an irony in his name. His name means God is king. And yet, his choices speak contrary to his name. And the author of Ruth wants you to see this. You're not Hebrew, but a Hebrew person would know it, right? When they read it, that his name means God is king, and yet, that's not exactly the way that he's living. Instead of trusting in God's kingship and his provision for his people, Elimelech followed the best prospects for his family in his own eyes. And so what we saw in verse 2, or in verse 1 rather, I believe, yeah, verse 1, was that they went sojourning, okay, temporary stayers, so as to feed themselves. They go from sojourners to what we saw at the end of verse 2. Look at it. The end of verse 2. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they were no longer sojourners. It says, and they remained there. They stayed. It, it ramps up. They go from, hey, we're just looking for food to now we're going to stay in the land of plenty, but is the land of barrenness. The heart of their journey changes. Bethlehem was by the way, the name Bethlehem literally means the house of bread. There's more irony there, right? The house of bread. But they pursued happiness of having their needs immediately met in Moab. Guys, the principle is very easy to see here. And that is that it's easy to align with God's will when it is convenient. But it is another thing to choose to honor God when it's inconvenient or when it is difficult or when it is countercultural to do so. What motivates your decisions? When things get difficult, what is the primary bottom line motivator of your daily choices? Is it pleasure? Is it convenience? Is it happiness? Or is it faithfulness? Many people bear the label Christian, and yet their Christianity has no real impact on life-defining decisions. The test of faith is not 
whether or not you call yourself a Christian, but whether you live out Elimelech. The test of your faith is not what you call yourself. It's do you live out God is king, hear me, when it is hard to do so. Do you engage in a gospel conversation when you're called to, even though it is convenient to just shut up? Do you butt out of what isn't your business when everything in you wants to pass on or listen to that juicy gossip? It's hard to. Despite everyone having the app, everyone having Snapchat, when you realize that, hey, there is no accountability in this app. And I know what the news page on Snapchat is. It's vile and it's despicable. The images, I know what Snapchat holds. When it's hard to go against the grain of our culture, is God king? Everyone has Instagram. Everyone has Facebook. But if those things are sources where you're feeding your vanity and pride, is God king when you use those apps? Is God king when it's hard? Are you willing to put the endless scrolling in its place? It's easy to scroll the time away. Are you willing to give to the church when your bank account says it's hard to do so? Fathers, heads of household, are you willing to pray aloud with your children? Guys, they may never voice that they want this, but your children want and need you to be a spiritual leader. But it's not easy to do that. And it's also not convenient to do that sometimes. Is God king when it's inconvenient? Is God king when it's inconvenient to be the only one in your friend group that skips the party? Is God king when it's inconvenient to put kids' sports in its proper place as defined by God, not by what everybody else is doing? Listen, church, the temptation is just like what we see in the life of Elimelech. And that is that we convince ourselves, oh, this is just a sojourner's trip. I'm just going to sojourn into this sin. It's a temporary stay. But sin is so much more deceitful than that. Sojourning becomes remaining there. And so I'll stop tomorrow becomes years of being enslaved to a pattern of sin. Don't live a life filled with regret. Elimelech's name literally meant God is king, but he lived in a way that made it very evident that God wasn't king. And so he became ensnared, enslaved. And I think that we can empathize with that. The result of that in his life was that great pain would come from this decision, which is what we're going to see next. Number two, the pursuit of happiness. And that is this question, how is God revealing himself through my pain? How is God revealing himself through my pain? Pain is real. Sometimes it is deserved and sometimes, quite frankly, it's just not. Sometimes circumstances knock on your door and there's nothing that you did to cause that. This isn't really that situation. Sin brings pain. The consequences of sin are painful. Pain plays a vital role in the story of this book. Elimelech is the centerpiece of the narrative for one verse. And you may then expect it to be Ruth, but for now, 
The center of the story is a woman named Naomi, and it's Elimelech's wife. We'll see that this is Naomi, or this is Ruth's mother-in-law. But Elimelech's time, it's a very brief stay. Okay, He gets out of here really quickly, but it changes gears. Elimelech's name meant God is king. Naomi's name, again, would be something that they would read, and they would just know it means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. Which, again, is ironic because we know what comes next. It's anything but pleasant. Her story takes a terrible turn. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Not very pleasant. And she was left with her two sons. And so, okay, turmoil begins, but in verse 4 it compounds. She has two sons, her husband's dead. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. They lived there. Here's the extent of the remaining, folks. They lived there about 10 years. The story paints the decision of this family to seek provision in Moab as a bad decision. We've already talked about that. And after the death of her husband, the reader would expect Naomi to then return home. Go back to your kinsmen. Your husband's out of the picture. Go back. But the reader just kind of continues to dive into this pit with her. She has two sons with Elimelech. They take up Moabite wives, which you could have probably guessed that's a cultural faux pas. You could make an argument that it's outlawed in Scripture, but you know theologians are not totally sure that they would see it this way. But at least it's a cultural faux pas because of what will likely come with it, which is taking up foreign gods. Naomi was not a woman of character. All right? Sometimes we read this and we think, oh, Elimelech was the bad guy, and so Naomi was virtuous, and we're going to see that her life takes a positive turn. She wasn't exactly a a virtuous woman. She wasn't exactly a woman of character that was caught up in a whirlwind of her husband's sins. She could have gone back, all right? She could have gone back with her sons, but she stayed there for 10 years. 10 years, because that's a long time. 10 years, she remains in the land of sin. 10 years, compounding the wrong. One person said that, She felt more at home in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. I think that's really well said. And so the reader reads this, and a Hebrew reader probably more naturally, but the reader reads this and says, okay, so, you know, 10 years, if family's an important part of this culture, they're there 10 years, she has married sons, and so her her husband's dead, but at least she gets grandchildren out of it. That's sort of the natural reading tendency is, okay, 10 years, she's got two married sons, and so she has grandchildren, but here's the thing, she doesn't. She doesn't have grandchildren. And then the story gets real sad. Verse 5. And both Malon and Chilion, that's her sons, they died. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. It's pain. It's pain. Naomi's name means pleasant, but her life had just become a living nightmare. She's widowed, she's aged, and she's childless. You know, in the United States, this would be terribly sad. In fact, you read it and you think that is a sad story, because it is. It's terribly sad in our culture, but in our culture, things are different. We're not so much a family honor, family always has your back culture. In the Middle East, even today, this is still the case. Family is everything. Yeah, you got some friends, but family is everything over there. Here in the U.S., it's terribly sad. But it isn't a life without hope. 
If this happened to a woman today, in our day and age, and even you may know someone or be the person, you'd have government aid, you'd have community aid, you'd even have your local church, you'd have a retirement community, you'd have something, something to fall back on, something to say, we're not going to let that person fall between the cracks. But listen, church, Naomi was without hope in Moab. This story is infinitely sadder than it would be if it happened in this country. She was without hope, a stranger in a foreign land, in a male-dominated society. She lacked the provision and protection of a husband. Her parents are likely dead, meaning she couldn't return to her father's house like a young widow would be able to. Remarriage is off the table because she's likely beyond childbearing years. She can't support herself by trade, vocation. She can't get a job because women back then did not do those things. She's an aged widow without children, the worst fate of an Israelite woman. This is sad. She faces her declining years with no children to care for her and no grandchildren to lift her spirits. It's no secret to these people that in Israel there is no greater tragedy than for a family to cease to exist. And that is the destiny of Elimelech's family. It's going to end. There's no hope. Faced with no hope in the land of so-called comfort, Naomi is literally forced to go back to Israel. And it's obvious that this reads as a terrible, self-inflicted tragedy in some ways. But as we will see in the weeks to come, when I say that there is no hope, we know that's not true. Because our God is a God of hope. And as we will see in the weeks to come, this tragedy, listen to what I'm about to say. This tragedy, this terrible pain, listen, is the grace of God. A tragedy. Horrible circumstances is God's grace to her. God intends to use the pain of sin and suffering to restore Naomi. Church, we have all been in Naomi's shoes in some way or another. Tempted to abandon the bread of God and faithfulness for the bread of the world. A desire to be like Christ that is overtaken by the desire for happiness that sin promises but underdelivers, Especially when being like Christ is inconvenient or it requires sacrifice. And so being deceived, we take hold of what we consider better bread and so fall into complacency and a pattern of sinful disillusionment. We know this story, don't we? And if we just zoom out for a minute, don't you see that God would be perfectly justified to turn over Naomi to herself and let her story, the story of this family, be vanquished in their error? But God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. God's conviction, listen to me say this, church, God's conviction is never harsh. God's conviction is never harsh. It is necessary, a necessary means to turn you from building your own kingdom to being restored in His. God's conviction is never harsh. He simply uses it to restore His people. So my question this morning is, what part of your life, what sin 
What is ensnaring you and what has left you in lasting pain? Remaining pain. What failure did you begin as a sojourner and you've become a remainer? Perhaps even calloused in it. What area of your life have you become a remainer in a pattern of sin? Where is conviction the heaviest in your heart? Understand that conviction isn't meanness. Conviction is God's grace. Christian, your hurt is not beyond God's reach. And I would suggest to you even the contrary, that your hurt is there because God loves you. We learn a lot from this story. Is that God uses great pain to restore His people. Wouldn't it have been hateful I mean, not hateful, but lacking love for God to just turn over Naomi to herself. That would lack the love, right? But He doesn't turn her over to to herself. He restores her. And so understand that your hurt is not beyond God's reach. Your pain of sin is not beyond God's reach. I'm simply imploring you this. Open your eyes. God reveals Himself in the midst of your pain. What motivates my decisions? How is God revealing Himself through my pain? Guys, He would be justified to leave Naomi to die in Moab just like He would be justified to leave you and I to die in our sin. But though you pursued sin, Christ pursued you. Isn't that good news? Though you pursued sin, you pursued better bread, Christ The bread of life pursued you. And so the pursuit of happiness, guys, listen, it's no pursuit at all. Don't you understand that in Christ, happiness and joy everlasting pursued us? And isn't that the story of the gospel? A story of great hurt, but a story of great healing by a great God is that you were in peril, dying in your trespasses and sins and daily seeking better bread that will never satisfy the wages of sin piling up and piling up, hopeless. And God would be justified to turn you over to yourself and say, I'm ending that family line. But God breathed new life into you when the life and light of this world stepped into the darkness, the bread of life, calling you and saying, repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. Guys, listen, God uses your pain for your restoration. And it isn't His meanness, it isn't His strictness, it's His love for you. So my final conclusion would be simply this. Don't fall for the trap of sojourning into sin. Because sin doesn't work that way. Sin and Satan lures you not as a resident alien, but as a resident Don't fall for the trap of sojourning into sin that will inevitably turn into remaining. And then finally, whatever sin has you in pain, stop running. It can turn into 10 years. Turn to the one who restores in love, who pursued us that we could pursue him.
Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's message. We would love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and love above all else. For more information, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thespringhillbaptist.